This is Tessa and Matthew, and we're devouring and dissecting the original programming of TV's crown jewel, HBO, starting with its top 10 shows of all time, according to New York Magazine's Vulture. You're listening to HBO's. What can we say? We're sluts for HBO. So for today, we're going to kick off with number 10 on Vulture's list, which is Enlightened. And here's what this show is about. A self-destructive woman who has a spiritual awakening becomes determined to live an enlightened life, creating havoc at home and work. So wanted to give our origin story for why we are doing this podcast in the first place. So Matthew and I used to work at the same company. And when the pandemic happened, we went remote. So we'd call each other to discuss work, obviously. Um, But we'd always get sidetracked. And we'd start talking about movies and TV, which included usually an episode of Girls or Industry. And then a half hour later, we'd be like, okay, right, back to work. Um, We always said we're having such great conversations. It's too bad no one's listening that we know of. (laughs) <laughs> maybe our bosses maybe our bosses so sorry I mean, guys I, I, I wonder if they <laughs> do you think they knew like well I mean it was the pandemic so like everyone was you know everyone knew like also how like close we were and we'd be like oh we're gonna chat about it later and then we'd have like an hour blocked off for a phone call <laughs> yeah I think everyone was doing that so everyone was doing so that and then yeah we were just like we should we should really do this we should commit to making a podcast and really talking about HBO shows that's you know where we're at our strongest I think yeah I think I'd also say that like you know everyone I mean most people like TV and movies like I I feel like it's rare that you find someone who's like I'm not really into that or maybe they just have bad taste you know <laughs> But I feel like we realize with one another that we we both like to really get into it, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that not, I mean, you know, we worked for a production company, so I think everyone had like an interest, but like to really, to really like get in there. We like to get in the weeds and yeah. we both get really amped and I'm going to take a leap here and say that we both have pretty impeccable taste. So no, I, I think so too. And obviously you're a writer. Um you know, you. oh yeah, we should say what we do. Yeah. <laughs> There's a nice slip in there. <laughs> I'm a screenwriter. I'm a producer. Maybe one day we'll make something together that's not that a podcast. Would, exactly. That's we're on the road to it. We're gonna analyze the shit out of all these HBO shows, and then the final episode will us be like, here's our pilot. <laughs> I mean, that would be really cool. Like, what if at the by the end of this, we're like, you know, we can do this better. Better. <laughs> than the greats. Than the greats. But I will say, I will also say that YHBO. Okay. I used to work there. Full, full disclosure. <laughs> he's, for um, viewers, he's leaning forward with a, a hat that says HBO yeah, box. <laughs> I used to work there. And I think when I, when I worked there, I used to hear a lot from like higher like higher level execs who would sort of like come down the mountain to talk to the lay people <laughs> and they they would talk about the company's heritage of developing great content and nurturing talent and all this stuff and, and I thought it was very hubristic because by 2016 like 
there were lots of competitors mm-hmm. to HBO. Obviously, that's their job to tout the programming. But I didn't, I thought they were being braggy. And I was like, well, I don't think that's true. Like, there's plenty of other great content around. Mm-hmm. But now I think after having mm-hmm. left and now that there's so much content, I do think that I, I see it finally, you know, and I yeah. think that it is still the the brand still continues to mean something like I don't think it's been mm-hmm. diluted and I think like Netflix almost immediately diluted the the value of its name because some of the content is so bad so bad so bad I I think to your point there the volume although there are so many shows that have been canceled on HBO the vast majority have been so impressive in their quality and quantity I mean the shows that we're going to be talking about Some of them have seven to eight seasons, and Mm -hmm. that's a really impressive feat for TV versus some that, you know, have a a bit of a shorter stint like The Leftovers, but the fact that they've made, you know, top 10 lists across so many different sources is so impressive. And I think when I do think about TV, HBO is the first thing that comes to mind. It it seems like the motherland of of just great content that was also taking the the chance on, on taking content and applying it to a regular weekly programming and being like, we can deliver just as good storytelling and performances every week. That's true. Yeah. That Sunday night was, yeah, the Sunday night was a big part of it. I think that's Mm -hmm. another good point that it's also in terms of longevity from TV watchers perspectives and like consumers Mm -hmm. perspectives, HBO still has that kind of like cultural value that people are like, oh, this is going to be good, you know? And, and to kind of bring it back here, we were like, we want to talk about every show on HBO. <laughs> and then we looked at how many there are. And there are, what, like 180? A lot. A lot of original shows, yeah. When we were like, we're going to do every show on HBO ever made. <laughs> well, we, we wanted to do it. We were trying to find the gimmick, you know, of the podcast. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we thought of uh, Julie and Julia, that movie with Meryl Streep as Julia Child and mm-hmm. um, Amy, Amy Adams. Adams, Julie something. <laughs> yeah, they're Julie. Her so character good. was cooking her way through Julia Child's cookbook. So we were like, mm-hmm. why don't we watch our way through HBO's vault? Original. Entire library. Library, right. yeah, which was going to be like an impossible task. And who knows, maybe we'll still do it. If Absolutely. this successful, you know. Yes, give we'll us five see. stars, baby. We'll yeah, five watch stars. Every show. <laughs> five stars and five hundred thousand dollars. Um, and then I will happily watch every single show. Uh, but for right now, we were like, let's go with the trusted source. Yes, of their top ten ranking as of twenty twenty one, which we both agreed would be New York Magazine's Vulture and their top rated on all of all time shows on HBO. And then we broke it down to the top ten. And we're going to talk about a show per month. And so if you want to keep up with us and also rewatch, we'll talk about certain episodes, characters, performances, cultural context, et cetera. And we're going to work backwards, starting from number 10, yes. counting down to number one, and then a couple mm-hmm. of bonus episodes at the end mm-hmm. um, to kind of wrap the whole thing up. Mm-hmm. This show was co-created by Mike White, and Laura Dern. For everyone out there, Mike White is the creator of 
The White Lotus, which is a fantastic show that just released on HBO this year. You should definitely watch it if you haven't already. And I was delighted to find that he has done more TV. I had no idea. I, I knew that he was Ned Schneebly in School of Rock, and that's about it. And then, you know, we discover that he also created the show with the amazing Laura Dern, who we love and treasure. And also a quick plug for the movie Brad's Status, also written mm. by Mike White. It is a fantastic film that really captures what it's like to have crippling anxiety. And it does it in a really fun voiceover type way. But watching it, you have such a tangible look at what it's like for this middle-aged man who is fully going through this crisis. And I just remember being so in awe of the writing in that movie. Oh my gosh, he wrote Orange County. Sorry, I keep going off. <laughs> I love I love Orange County. And yeah. I love Lily, Lily Tomlin in Orange County. Oh, it's like about, Lily it's a comedy. But he, I, it seems like he has some frequent collaborators too, because Jack Black is in that. Uh, he also yep. directed Catherine wrote Year of the Dog. Yeah, Catherine O'Hara. Oh, shit. And then Year, Year of the Dog with Molly Shannon. I didn't know Mike White wrote School of Rock. Yes, yes. Ned Schneebly wrote School of Rock, which right. is my biggest selling point for White Lotus this summer when I was like pleading with people to watch it. I was like, Ned Schneebly wrote this show. Did you know that? It's a Very busy guy. Busy guy. I will say also now looking at this filmography, I definitely, and it's strongest, I think, in White Lotus and Enlightened. Mm. A, it's a lot about the common trappings of society that people try to overcome. Mm. I don't know if that's too broad or doesn't make any sense, but like, no, I, I'm I thinking think, about I think it does. Yeah. The, the lives and like caste systems that we're born into and when, and the moment at which people start to see the seams, you know, mm -hmm. and how that mm -hmm. makes them react. Mm -hmm. um, and the way, and the, their reactions to seeing the seams of, of their lives and their like realities, um, the good and the bad things that it makes them do because it can, it, it can make you enlightened like the show <laughs> suggests, but they yep. can also make you act in ways that are very naive because they, you ignore like, well, this is just the way that it's done. Like this is what mm -hmm. life is. I mean, definitely in school of rocks, obviously more of a, a broad crowd pleaser, but like Jack Black's character he's doing something in service of self-interest but at the same time he's kind of like revolutionizing education but like through his own self-interest and that's very similar to amy i think angelico yes. and enlightened mm -hmm. because she is a very like idealistic person but also very myopic you know she's doing things out of her like immediate self-interest and sometimes doesn't see the larger context which I think also plays into another theme that Mike White likes to work with, which is privilege and people who are of a certain class status. And they're like you you were saying so eloquently, it's like they have this moment where they could come to a realization, do the right thing. And more often than not, they don't. And they're kind of living in this bubble, which is definitely Amy, where she and we'll obviously get more into this, but it's like she's faced with so many moral compass decisions and she almost always takes the wrong one. And similar to White Lotus, where it's like these really wealthy people are presented with a situation where they could do something different 
challenge themselves, grow, learn, and they don't. And I think he has a lot of fun with that social commentary. I did want to note the the premiere and viewership at the premiere and then look at premieres of um, other similar comedies because mm-hmm. I know that HBO compares, you know, or at least I think a lot of networks will compare apples to apples. So they'll look at comedy performance to comedy performance or try and look at comps, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. versus compare it to like a draw, a big totally. kind of blockbuster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Girls premiered six months after Enlightened to almost 900,000 viewers, which is a lot more. And that also got such a uh, command of the audience because of the nudity. I remember like all of my friends were like, did you see how much sex was in that? And like poor enlightened, you know. (laughs) Totally. I think, but I think you're absolutely right. The discussion around the first season of Girls and subsequent seasons was like, Mm -hmm. there's Lena Dunham who... Mm-hmm. does not look like a lot of what we're seeing on screen yeah, yeah yeah i think people i remember people said really really horrible things about the way that she looked so mean older people that i like older people in my life were like all of her tattoos and like mm-hmm. you know commenting on like her weight and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. just like her general like attractiveness meter you know like and that became part of in some ways that became the discussion on the show but yeah. also the sex, you know, also the sex. sex. And yeah. then the sex in the city comparisons were yeah. HBO, I feel like, was pushing those. Veep premiered at the same time as Girls, actually, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yeah. In April 2012 to 1.38 million viewers, which makes a lot more sense just because it was headlined by a, a massive TV star. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Julia Louis Dreyfus had Seinfeld. That show, New Adventure. The New Adventure Christine. Christine. Yeah. 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 Um, also she, politics. People can buy into that more easily, I think, than like teenage girls living in Brooklyn and this, you know, unhinged woman in corporate yeah. America. <laughs> like, totally. Harder style. Although I think we will, I th- later we're going to get into the topic of antiheroes oh. and antiheroes as being like such a staple of premium cable mm-hmm. and like prestige television. And I think mm-hmm. Selena Meyer is an anti-hero. Plus, you know, just Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Like, that's a big, big oh, she's, name. She's so talented. She's so funny. I was going to say, where was Laura Dern at this point in her career? Because this is her first Globe win. Great point. Because, because I read an article. Mm-hmm. Hang on. So it was a Vox article by an, an author named Emily Vanderwerf. I'm pronouncing mm-hmm, that correct. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about this co- this show in the context of Laura Dern's career and mm-hmm. claiming that this this actually began the Laura Dern Renaissance. Um, the Dernaissance? The Dernaissance. <laughs> um, <laughs> that this kicked off the Dernaissance that would lead to mm-hmm. um, Big Little Lies, Star Wars. You know, she had the parts of Star Wars. Yep. Uh, and then, of course, the Oscar written for Marriage Story, which was Marriage not Story. that long ago. Little Women. Little Women, exactly. Same year. Um, Mm -hmm. And also Wild. I think Wild. um, I'm looking at her. I'm looking at her INDB right now. Wild was in 2014. So that was a pretty short after Enlightened. Yeah. And Fall in Our Stars. Lest us not forget Fault in Our Stars. Fault in Our Stars. She was also in The Master in 2012. She was in The Master? 
Yeah, she had a really small part. No way. I love that movie. I don't remember her. She was in that. Um, okay. Not a lot of wow. film after that of note. And then, of course, Wild. She got an Oscar nomination for Wild. Mm-hmm. Then, okay, then, interesting, Wild, 99 Homes, mm-hmm. that one with Andrew Garfield. Um, mm-hmm. Certain Women, which she was great mm-hmm. in, the Kelly Reichert film. Mm-hmm. The Founder, wow, with Michael The Keaton. Founder. Yeah. yeah. Then she started to get some of these more, like, buzzy, um, mm-hmm. you know, critically at least critically reviewed or regarded at all, whether good or bad things. Mm -hmm. Downsizing, which I actually really liked. Um, Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I actually did like it. I remember people hated it. And then then ripped it. They ripped it a new one. They ripped Downsizing. Also, The Tale. That is a great fucking movie on HBO. The Tale. HBO original film. Yes. Very hard to watch as a trigger warning, I would say. But it is like really immaculately done you know i think anti-heroes were a big staple, and male anti-heroes were a big yep. staple of like the onset of prestige television um i support that yeah i mean yeah you know you've got things like dex well dexter was in 2006 beat yep. started in 2006 and ran through 2013 on showtime mm-hmm. mad men uh, so dexter is obviously about a serial killer Mm-hmm. Mad Men on AMC 2007 to 2017 about an ad executive, m- messed up ad executive, um, a, also a man. Breaking mm-hmm. Bad about a science teacher turned drug dealer. But the antihero kind of like genre, if you, if you could even call it a genre or like character study, wasn't mm-hmm. just reserved for men men weeds yeah weeds weeds begin 2005 which was actually before all those shows that i just before breaking bad wow i didn't realize that before dexter before madman before breaking Mm -hmm. bad 2005 to 2012 i mean 2005 we were we were 11 we were babies the the thing i was gonna say before that's so interesting about looking at this list is i feel like generally speaking the women who are playing the anti-heroes in these shows usually get a worse rap for their like likability. Because I remember people rooting for Walter White, rooting for um, Don Draper, but then you'd get these char- these female characters who are also exactly the definition of an anti-hero, selling drugs for to get money for their family, whatever they have to do, and they would just not like the same way. And it is so baffling (laughs) when you look back and you're like they're categorically doing the same thing fulfilling the same need in the scripts and amy is exactly this unhinged stigmatized like every checks every box and people have such a hard time with women being these roles and it's just so wild to see them all lined up against one another and be like wow like claire dane's character in homeland got shit on all the time And it was like, well, what do you expect? What do you want? Like someone playing the same role who has no problems and, you know, like, yeah, go lucky gal. No, totally. I, I I think that these, I I think that's really well said because the male driven ones, it's like, we love to hate them, but the, the female driven or the women led shows are we hate to hate you know yeah like exactly recently, Can't stand up. I, yeah I, I was recently talking to a, an older person in my life i'm not going to name names i'm just going to say an older person in my life you know we were talking about succession which we're going to talk about yeah. next episode mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. obviously that show is 
dominated by a despic. It's a show about despicable, a despicable family, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I noticed this person kind of harping on Shiv more than any of the other characters. Oh, which is yes. something that we'll talk about. Whereas, oh yeah, I per- I personally, not that I'm like glorifying, my, like I'm a good man or whatever. But right. like I will, I think you're a great man. <laughs> okay, if you say it, then I then I'll take it. But I I was like I thought that Shiv was the most relatable and the most kind of like, but but that was but you're absolutely right. I mean, girls, at least for girls, because we're gonna keep talking. Mm-hmm. Gonna go back. We're always there. sorry, listeners, if you're not a fan of girls, because we are always gonna bring it back to girls. <laughs> we'll always bring it up. But they railed on Lena Dunham. I mean, oh they they Marnie too. They hated Marnie. Marnie. Oh yeah. my god. <laughs> and I'm not saying that she's without fault. Okay, she did yeah. a lot of she she Lena said, Dunham. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. She she has said some some regrettable things, but mm-hmm. I also think that like she was a like writer, she was director. a pioneer. <laughs> I mean, she she was just a writer director writing about her experience mm-hmm. and like yeah yeah and uh, it, you know that you know when we we're not even going to talk about that show because it's not in the top ten viewers listeners hit us with those five stars baby and we will give you because we got in, we have to do our girls episode we, we to- do have to do our girls episode okay yeah. you know what? let's let's switch. let's just okay yeah i don't want to think- talk too much about it so the, okay so this is interesting because i also was noticing in just to continue the conversation about women as anti-heroes mm-hmm. weeds obviously very an early show in the premium cable universe on showtime yep. 2005 2012 Mary Louise Parker about a pot dealer. The Big C began in 2010, which I I watched when it first came out. I think that's how I knew I was gay, to be honest with you. The Big C. We'll unpack that later. Love we'll that. We'll unpack that later. 2010, <laughs> 2013, Lori Linney plays a cancer patient. Less, that's not really anti-hero, although I think she did, you know, the the diagnosis made her do all sorts of like you know, fuck like weird things. Okay, interesting. I've never seen the big seat, but I do love Laura Linney. So it's great. But again, like sort of, you know, heavy, heavy content led by, um, you know, prestige actor. And Ozark also anti-hero show. Ozark. Ozark. Mm-hmm. Although that came later with Netflix. That's like, yeah, very recent. And then Homeland 2011 through 2020. That's like an insane, that's nine seasons. <laughs> With Claire Danes as a spy, mm-hmm. I guess. I watched most, a lot of it, but not all. But I guess she's like a spy, right? She works for like a central. Yeah, she's in the CIA. I mean, I remember when Anne Hathaway hosted SNL and they did a sketch about Homeland and they just had a ball making fun of her character. I love, and- love that <laughs> sketch so much. I love it. Interesting that you bring up Anne Hathaway as well, because mm-hmm. when we're talking about like hatred of women. Yep hatred of women period but mm-hmm. Anne Hathaway won I'm pretty sure she won her Oscar in 2012 for for Les Mis Les Mis know. and the mm-hmm. the intense hatred of her that followed yep um it you know d- during the press the press junket for the movie and all of the awards press and everything like people hated her and then when she came back to do Colossal she talked a lot about that that um neon movie about the woman who controls the monster that's like oh it's a great movie but that was years later and when she came back in yeah. colossal she spoke a lot about what ha- like that this was a comeback that she had to make because people hated on her and then of course jennifer lawrence 
Uh, Jennifer Gardner too got a big brunt of it. And it, it really boggles my mind. I, my friend actually recently told me about the whole Anne Hathaway curse. And I didn't even know that was a thing. There's a name for it. And I was yep, like, what are you Anne talking about? Yeah. And I, I the J-Lock. I mean, same thing with Jennifer Lawrence. It's just really boggles my mind. Laura Dern's character in this is not your typical anti-hero because she's not a spy, a drug dealer, whatever, but she is someone who is kind of going against the grain and the characters in this show just all are so quick to be like, she's crazy. She's insane. She's, you know, no one really gives her the time of day or a chance or anything or listens to her. Um, yeah, definitely. And it mirrors a lot of society. And, you know, you hear one person has a breakdown and you're like, well, you know, that's that. And it's just so unkind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, the, I, I do think that, yeah, this show is very banal. You know, like good word. The 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 subject this <laughs> the subject matter, and I but I do think that that's why it fell through the fell through the cracks in terms yeah. of ratings and eventually got canceled because all everything else we had seen before in terms of prestige television, at mm -hmm. least in the antihero space, that it involved some kind of suspension of disbelief or like a dose a a dose of of you know like heavy fiction, like a drug mm -hmm. dealer. You don't meet yep. one of those the, all that often. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I would say if it was period, like Mad Men, then that obviously right. allows us to be like, well, that was back then. Mm -hmm. You know, spies, serial killers, famous people, um, entourage, even the mm -hmm. big C, you know, cancer. I just don't, like a, a big terminal cancer diagnosis is like a horrible thing, but not mm -hmm. something that we are, everyone is like, on a daily basis dealing with. And then mm -hmm. Enlighten comes al along and this is about a woman who works for a big corporation. She's kind of like a middle, middle, well, she's not a manager. I guess she was like a VP or something before she got mm -hmm. left, before she got kicked or before she had her breakdown. Well, she breaks down and then, yeah, it goes to the retreat. Just real quick to, before we move on from this like anti-hero kind of bit, I love this quote from this, article in the New York Times that basically is calling all of these characters damaged characters on the margins of society. And all of these shows are clever and well-executed variations of similarly dark conceit, comedy spelled with a small C and a big D for downer. And it's such a great succinct way of putting it that you are watching these super unhinged people who are just kind of living on the outskirts weaseling their way in with these problems and they're really funny but they're also so unbelievably dark and this show it was such a uh, gem in that because the premise is so simple and mm -hmm. you know like different um so yeah anyway just to say that that i think it's so wild how these anti-heroes i don't know what i'm saying anymore <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Do you follow? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I follow. And that was what was popular. That is what was popular. I think what continues to be popular. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we look like people love to talk about how fucked up <laughs> these people are. Basically. Yeah, but what, yeah. But I do think that this was this show lost a lot of people because she was so similar, or at least her circumstances were so similar to the lives of whether or not, whether, you know, maybe it wasn't your life, but like the life of your mom or your dad or another person. You I'm could sure relate to it. Yeah. yeah. She worked for a company. She worked for like mm -hmm. a, um, 
like a Unilever or like one of these, like, you know, a pharmaceutical company or something that makes, I don't know what you would mm-hmm. call that consumer packaged goods company mm-hmm. uh, as a VP executive, a buyer. She bought, you know, I think she was a buyer. Yeah, she was a buyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she lived with her mother later. You know, she had an ex-husband, like very, very, and nothing. I mean, eventually something big does happen to her. Yeah. Um, but at least like the base circumstances and the sh- a lot of the show just deals with her dissatisfaction at work and what happens to her in the workplace. And so yeah. I think like in some ways, the show was like, it was so close to, I hate to say the phrase so close to home because it's such a cliche, mm-hmm. but it was, I just don't think people understood. I think they, it made them hate her even more because they were yeah. like, they were like, well, this is a, a show about a unlikable woman in unexciting circumstances, you know, living yeah, at exactly. home, to work. Like, yep. Yep. Um, and that's the Mike White, you know, that's the genius of Mike White. Totally. I think it was ahead of its time. And one of the yeah. articles I saw that was so smart was like written in 20, 2019, but it was like, I think Enlightened would do really well right now, actually. Like having oh, yeah. this woman being like super on it with the climate change crisis and politics and she's like we got to make some big changes here and doesn't really know how but everybody else is so like dismissive of her and that would be it almost could get criticized for being too on the nose right now but back Mm. then it was just like you're saying I think people just weren't hooked by it they just didn't want to watch it it didn't give them any satisfaction yeah, I mean, if you look at White, I mean, White Lotus was a huge cultural moment earlier this mm-hmm. year, and it was mm-hmm. basically about. I remember watching that show and being really like perplexed by the tone and the <laughs> visual, even visually, it had this kind of like orange, um, like filter, like everything was like kind of looked like burnt, and so therefore, like it, you mm-hmm. always were like, "What's gonna like?" It felt very mm-hmm. sinister, but it was just about despicable people on vacation yeah. i mean eventually bad things at happen. its core mm-hmm. yeah but it was also kind of like mundane circumstances right yes Honestly, i someone think that's dies. a great way of putting it someone dies and that's the thing is like if you took the the murder out nothing happens a recap of enlightened in essence, at its core, is that Laura Dern plays Amy Jellico, And the opening scene of the pilot is that she is furious. She is crying. She's so upset. She is going to be let go from her job. And she's blaming it on, I think, like her boss, who his yeah. character's name is Damon, that she had an affair with. And she is screaming parting elevator doors being like they're gonna fire me and it's not my fault cut to amy on a beach in hawaii at this center for like mindfulness basically and reforming yourself and bettering yourself so she goes back to california and she expects to get her exact same role back as a vp buyer and instead they say you can still work here, but now you're going to work on the bottom floor, which is basically this like very scary looking annex type place that is doing who the fuck knows what with IT. And she's stuck down there with all the outcasts and her entire mission 
is to enact change. She is an agent of change and bringing change to the company, being more environmentally oriented and doing better than they are. And she wants to, in tandem, work her way back up to where she was because she still thinks she was wrongfully terminated. But the so interesting thing about her character is that she's very self-aware about her what she went through with her breakdown and and about the treatment she's gotten. But what she doesn't see is how self-destructive she constantly is. I didn't realize until later in this, in season one, when Mm -hmm. we meet, or I guess that might even be season two, when Levi goes to the same facility. Oh, yeah. It had a, it had a sobriety component. And for context, her ex-husband, Levi, who's played by Luke Wilson, is a alcoholic, drug addict, and really showing no signs of changing or wanting to change. And then she ends up being like, you should go to this place. It will get you better. When she has her breakdown at the beginning of episode season one, episode one, Mm -hmm. you know, I think the juxtaposition from the breakdown to when she comes back, her kind of like idealistic desire to change, um, you know, to view the world in a different way. It, mm-hmm. it is kind of the catalyst for that like change of attitude and mental space is going away and she's not yes. there for very mm-hmm. long so it makes you think of all these other people who like take an ama- one amazing vacation or do one amazing <laughs> class and suddenly they're like you know or like they go to do a yoga retreat and they come back and they're like i'm super centered like that's the mm-hmm. you know that's the mm-hmm. character that this is kind of lampooning we all know that yeah. person, right? We absolutely do. And also, Mike White loves Hawaii. Is the first loves thing Hawaii, <laughs> loves Hawaii, loves people, loves like white people who like, you know, um, go to Hawaii and like want to like live the way the Hawaiians do, kind of. Yeah, it's like this weird, <laughs> like self-righteous like I can take this on it's better and I'm going to spread it to everyone in my life whether they like it or not and like when she comes home to live with her mom and she's so dissatisfied with the way her mom lives and the way she has to live now she's like this is just so not like how it was there and it's such a slap in the face it's like well girl you know this is how it is (laughs) exactly and and that is that is kind of the I think the the Mike White sweet spot which is Mm -hmm. like these characters, they are not wrong, right? They're saying yep. things that are that are not wrong. Amy Jellico is saying, like, the way we live is fucked up. Yep. And like, mm-hmm. why couldn't we live a simpler, kinder existence? Life? Yeah. But yeah. also they are wrong. They are also they're wrong. They're not wrong, but they're also very wrong <laughs> because it there's yeah. a naivete and also a um privilegedness that comes with with the ability to say that you know I think much later we'll get to this but um you know her mom when she and her mom have a fight in the last episode season two in the series finale and Mm -hmm. you know she's like the LA Times thinks I'm very brave and her mom's like are they going to put a roof over your head are they going to um, help you get out of debt so the characters are not wrong in their kind of like probing of society and like questioning why we live the way that we live but they're also very privileged naive and just myopic you know they see like Mm -hmm. they see like oh i want to live like you know they they just see what's right in front of them they don't see 
the bigger the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there was kind of a really funny running joke throughout where Amy just keeps bringing up the changes and the things she wants to change. And we almost never hear what specifically it is until this one episode where she presents like for five minutes, like the research she's done to um, Damon and the team. And then they all end up making fun of her the second she leaves the room. But I just thought it was such a funny like running joke Mike White is probably having. Where, where it's like she keeps expressing this desire to make things better and change, but she can't even really articulate what it is. And eventually when they all make fun of her, they're making these points that are like, these are insane things you want to do. You think like this massive company can just like cut out all of our like excess use of like paper or whatever it is. They're like, we can't realistically just change that. And like, how could yeah. you think that we could even do that? And it is this really sad idea of this like privileged white woman just being like, we got to make things better. And then it's like, girl, <laughs> are you really thinking this through? Or are you just saying right. this because you want to feel better? No, totally. It's it's interesting though, because upon rewatching it a second time in preparation mm -hmm. for the show and then rewatching mm -hmm. select episodes in preparation for this recording, Mm -hmm. You know, when you first watch the show, at least for me, my experience, I was like, this is a, a fart, like this is a parody or, or yeah. this, like, you know, we're, we're meant to laugh at Amy. She's a ridiculous mm -hmm. character. You've got Laura Dern, like, you know, the long, long Laura Dern. Big, long you know, with her with her t-shirts that say long lord dern long lord dern with her like Love amazing it. uh limbs like contorting yep. her body and just being mm -hmm. exasperated and having like meltdowns and and going back and forth between i'm so zen and then also like fuck all of you you know yeah yeah burn this place and you're to like, the ground right we're supposed to be laughing at this person who who has like been enlightened by her trip and is now like you know trying to fix everything but when you re when you watch it again and again, at least for me, mm -hmm. definitely all that stuff is still there. Like, you know, Amy's still out to lunch, basically. Mm -hmm. But you also realize, like, through being out to lunch and, like, stumbling through, like, her new life, she's, like, poking holes at all the pressure points in society and yep. exposing, like, all of the ridiculous things that about the way that we live and in some mm -hmm. ways i kind of feel like this is a show about big claim just like the evils of capitalism like what it means soulless to corporate america i think one moment we had talked about before recording when we were just chatting about how much we're loving the show that really ties that up nicely is when amy gets this idea that she wants to apply to a role at a homeless shelter for a job and the interview's going great and everything's going great. And she's so psyched. She can finally leave this terrible new floor she's on that she's miserable in and this miserable company. And then the person says the salary for this job at the homeless shelter is only 26000 And she starts crying and she's so upset because she can't live on that. That's not enough for her to have an income and get a new place and a car and everything. And there's this man who's running this homeless shelter, hugging her and making her feel better about it. And Matthew and I are talking about this and I say, well, why can't you just volunteer at the homeless shelter? <laughs> like, why can't you just like still help that way, but just not work there? And that's where I think, like you're saying, it's such a great commentary on this this job, this pressure that we have to have these salaries that we can afford a life. But then it also stops you from doing things that are better for 
hum- humankind and society and everything because she can't afford to live on that that she can't oh yeah no totally you know? <laughs> living in living in this country is expensive so expensive uh, and but also the, we, the block in her mind that she's like but that's it it's done and it's like no you can still help you can still do things even if you can't get a salary from it oh no completely yeah that's a really <laughs> good point and that that's where her naivete comes into play because it's mm-hmm. like well why can't you hold down this job and also volunteer? But then right. we also have to look at back up and look at, you know, why did she lose the job in the first place? Mm. And I don't really know exactly, but she has a breakdown. She's yep. a woman in corporate America and she has an affair with her boss. And then somehow she's the one that gets, you know, bears the brunt consequences of that. for that. Right. And not right. him. Yeah. And it sets her off. But you also realize that her family has a history of, mental illness basically because spoiler and we'll get to this but like her dad Mm -hmm. her dad commits suicide Mm -hmm. the show tries to suggest that like it's a failed deal that makes him kill himself a failed like business deal that makes Mm -hmm. him kill himself obviously people know you know that causality like people there there are other many other reasons why people would take their own life like that they are depressed you know they struggle Mm -hmm. with something and that's but how his show, wife remembers it too. That's how his wife remembers it exactly. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. But at least we, but but then we could at least you know ascertain, especially based on how Amy acts throughout the show, that there might be some kind of history of mental illness in this family. And so we see how like corporate America, how the corporate world affects that part of Amy, how it affects her as a woman, yeah, um, and just kind of like does her really really dirty it does you know? it, yeah and and she's gets this reputation um from these things that paint her in this light where like Michaela Watkins who's an excellent supporting player in this and many others <laughs> just keep calling her crazy and keep looking down on her because they're like you're the one who couldn't keep it together and you know you lost your job and then now this is what you get and it really is so interesting to watch her try so hard to bring meditation and yoga and all these helpful resources and no one will really give her the time of day about it. They right. all still look down on it. And, you know, she's she was onto something and she was. And, and we are <laughs> yeah. also we are conditioned to like, I, I think we're conditioned to look down on those things and think that they're stupid. Like, I certainly do. Like, if people are like, let's go to yoga or people are like, why don't you just breathe? I'm like, you know, that's ridiculous. Right. Um, right. And she obviously is like, you know, she's the conduit for like, you know, this type of personality that I think people make fun of. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of things to make fun of about. But at the end of the day, she's still poking holes in like this life, this ridiculous life that like we've constructed for ourselves, you know. Totally. I'm looking at this uh, insider article um where it basically is laura dern speaking to the character directly and she says she may be complicated at home but she will get in the face of corporate america and say no more i'm exposing you and now this year this moment everywhere i go people are bringing it up and i'm just like we are all amy and i thought that was so poignant how she's looking at this character in such a positive light of like being the spokesperson for everyone who's gonna like get in there in the face and and take it down, even if she doesn't really have all the tools, <laughs> doesn't really know what she's talking about, 
But what yeah. she does know is that this is a fucked up way of living and she's not happy and she is going to volunteer as Tribune basically <laughs> to be yeah. the one to bring it down. And there is something very like endearing and, and hopeful about that, which yeah. makes this character so, so unbelievably well written. Oh, completely. Be- especially because of the layers, because like we are conditioned to hate her. Totally. Um, and there is a lot to hate, like you said. I mean, she, she, mm-hmm. um, makes a lot of really bad, bad calls. Um, but you could also but, view yeah. those, you could view her as a martyr in some ways. Yeah. Too, you know, like she j- totally, she quite literally, I mean, we don't know what happens because the show ends, but mm-hmm. she, she blows the whistle, right? On Abaddon, the country, the company that she works for. Um, and fucks herself over entirely. I mean, big time. Yep. Big time. She doesn't understand the legal consequences for what she has done. And yet she is at peace with what she's done. I mean, she's going to go to prison, right? So basically, Amy has this moment with the journalist played by Dermot Mulroney, who is the one who's going to write this article that calls out Abaddon. And after she gets fired, she calls him from her car and she says, well, I, I just got fired. And he says, well, you know, we thought that would happen or we knew that would happen. And she's baffled. And she says, like, did we? And I could not believe it. Watching it again, I was like, how did you not think you wouldn't get fired for this? I mean, you hacked the system with a couple coworkers, exposed them. Like, of course, they're going to fire you. And yeah, you will go to prison. And so I just thought it was so wild to me that she did not know the consequences of her actions, really and truly, down to the, like, you're going to lose your job, A. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's her response, like, you know, it's her responsibility. It's her fault, right? This is her yeah. life. But at mm-hmm. the same time, um, you also have to wonder, like, this guy, like, you know, this the journalist's kind of an asshole because, he, yeah. you know, he's hot. He's so hot. And we'll get to that. <laughs> but um, he also, like, if he had a moral, any kind of moral compass, and let's say you were working with someone, right? And you were working right. on something and you got to know them. You were developing a, even whether or not you were romantic. Friendship, relationship, them. totally. Yeah, just as like a person to person, you might be like, hey, by the way, like this is going to have some serious consequence. But no, he just assumes, you know, but it is still her fault. I mean, if she had a, if she were thinking a little bit harder or like she, you know, often fails to do, think a couple of steps down the road, mm-hmm. self-preservation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's what it really is. The mm-hmm. self-preservation goes out the door. That's but such a good point. it's interesting yeah. that uh, like we are, we are conditioned to like self-preserve, right? Like yep. how can we like, protect our finances, protect our, our, you know, privacy. Job security. Um, job yep. security. But, you know, a lot of that stuff goes out the door when she kind of gets set on this new path of, of enlightenment and I want to change things and fix things. But it's, it's actually, now that I'm saying this out loud, it's interesting to think of this now in the context of what happened last year in 2020 mm-hmm. with the Black Lives Matter movement, because mm-hmm. I think we saw a lot of people begin to realize that structural change is does mean losing things right yeah and um certainly there is a way of you know put it it means if you're a white person or a rich person or someone with means or resources or an able-bodied person you know like it means putting what you have on the line right 
in order to like see change. And I think that was like a big moment of reckoning last year for a lot of advantaged people in different categories. She's also thinking, I mean, she's a dreamer, right? And she's an idealist. She's like thinking of the headlines. Like whenever she tells, you know, Tyler, who's played by Mike White, like something that's happening in this project, they do this really funny thing where they kind of like, she says her banter, she says whatever. And then the music plays and she has a voiceover and she's talking about the agent of change and the things that will happen. She's not even listening to the other person. She's just like seeing this like parade for her happening. And it's like, she forgets that all these little things have to happen in order for this big change to happen. And like, yes, there is a way she probably could have gone about this without doing the whistleblower route. But again, then we wouldn't have a TV show because like, what's more fun than watching the self-destructive, beautiful woman like, exactly. in the halls, right? No, that's a great yeah. note about, it's a great note about like one of the creative choices of the show that I think works so well mm-hmm. because you, re- because it underscores how little she sees, how little she understands like, you know, gradual or like, like granular details. But at the same time, you know, it kind of begs the question, like, maybe we do have to take a sledgehammer to things. And maybe totally. it does mean, like, maybe the way that things actually happen are when privileged people detonate their own lives. I mean, mm-hmm. right? And their own circumstances. Yeah. Like, give away all your money. Yeah. Spend all of your time working in service of something. Like, you know, she, look, she ruins her life. She's going to go to prison. Yeah. She's fucked up her relationship with her mom. Um, her ex. She's in debt her ex she's in debt um but you know this that everything but in the end what happens the whistle gets blown on abaddon you know like she works the needle it works Mm -hmm. um and we and we we pity her we look down on her um and she is ridiculous but at the same time like she has accomplished something she did it yep she did what she set out to do and so it's interesting yeah the episode before this is really uh, wild because she gets the chance to talk one-on-one with the CEO, which is set up by his assistant, Molly Shannon, who is now in a courtship with uh, Tyler. And she ends up getting this job offer from him. And that would mean basically that the mission is off. She'd get a six-figured salary, finally get to do whatever she wants to do with spearheading this change. And she makes the call to, I think, Jeff at that point and is like, can you not run the article? And he's like, oh, it's already underway. It's happening. And so that's where I do question the sincerity of everything because I'm like, you were willing to throw this away for a job offer. Like, how much did you want this to actually happen? Okay, that's very true, though. Yeah, that's a really good point. A really good point about about the character and also and also kind of about our own selves too our own right? moral compass yeah because right i mean you know you also have to wonder like she she also really she liked what it was doing for her own ego and for her yes. identity right like remember her when she purpose. goes mm-hmm. her purpose and she's bumping elbows with all those like you know academic um leaders and yeah at the, the party that jeff invites her to she likes mm-hmm. it you know she mm-hmm. wants to be known like there is a little bit yeah. of like ego there yeah um and i think that's fine because like no one is e- completely egoless i don't think that's possible totally it's not yeah but it's true but- like, it does, <laughs> yeah it's still she's like the minute that this guy is about to offer her a pretty decent 
that's a good salary. Totally. He was like looking at her as this like whiny woman who works in the company. And he's like, how can I like shut her up and give her some power here that she thinks she has and throw this money at her whenever she wants. I mean, that was the thing that was so insane to watch was they have this little meeting at a golf club. He's like, thanks for coming here and meeting me. Yeah, whatever you want. I'll pay you whatever you want. And you're like, she has worked. We watched her for two seasons try to accomplish what she just did in like 15 minutes. Something to say here is how amazing the supporting cast is. Um, It really is a shining moment for Mike White as Tyler, because I had only really seen him in School of Rock, but he does Mm -hmm. a great job in this. And just some other names that to entice you guys to watch a show would be mm-hmm. Sarah Burns, Michaela Watkins, Jason Manzukis, Dermot Mulroney, aka Hot Journalist, and Molly Shannon. Mm-hmm. And yes, these Molly Shannon is frequent collaborator of Mike White. Absolutely. Um, they seem like BFFs. <laughs> yeah, totally. That would yeah, be. Was oh, it um, that movie? oh, the Year, Year of the Dog, right? Year of yeah. the Dog, obviously mm-hmm. this. And then she White comes Lotus. back to White Lotus. A great but cast. That said, you know, yeah, a good cast, but also like a, a cast that leans comedic, I would say. Mm-hmm. In some of the, like Molly Shannon, obviously, is that, you know, she was known for comedy. Jason Mansukis is mm-hmm. primarily in comedy. Even like, you know, is Michaela Watkins or Sarah Burns is... um Krista right yeah and she's normally in like a lot of um like Will Ferrell movies yeah comedy, and comedies like, like that and, and she did a Mike great job White. in this yeah that's the Mike White touch because like you're at, on the surface you're meant you think that you're meant to laugh right yeah and you mm-hmm. and you are supposed to be laughing because mm-hmm. you see you're also you know there's there's certain things that you're getting like plot points just the cast like the what you're seeing you know the people yep. you're seeing like oh comedy right mm-hmm. um yeah it's that it's that like mix of tones i think that's and it has that yeah dramatic undertone and um, it's shot it's often shot in a way of like a, a workplace comedy too sometimes totally yeah and the way the a b and c storylines kind of intertwine and you're checking in on different people but it it does have this dramatic element to it which is really yeah and then it's sometimes different. like i think when they're in the office it gets it has that in when they're in in the COVID cogentiva basement, they it has that look right of like mm-hmm. you know a workplace comedy in terms of like how it's shot, and then sometimes mm-hmm. it'll do the slow mo when she's when she has her voiceover and it has this yeah. kind of like holier than thou thing, but then mm-hmm. sometimes it it's it's handheld like in the really chaotic moments when she's yeah. like running around you know doing whatever. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting. It mixes like to, the the tonal mix in terms of how it's made is like is interesting which is pretty similar to white lotus because there's a lot of moments on white lotus where you're like can i laugh like do i have permission to laugh at this because it feels like a drama but yeah and i think like you're saying the mike white touch i love that i think that is his like bread and butter is he's like i'm gonna like blend this laughter and sadness into one and this like commentary because he's all about making a good social commentary yeah and the commentary and then i think again this this author emily vanderwerf she was writing in vox uh, Mm -hmm. when she was talking about the dern the dernissance um that she has she has a specialty that laura dern has a specialty of playing white women of a certain social class who are barely holding it together um which is <laughs> so i mean that's very true and very interesting i mean that These is little not eyes us. yeah that's oh, not us. to a t 
Oh my god. Maybe her maybe her lawyer from Marriage Story. Marriage Story. And then she says it's centered on the ways women might transgress the social code. We are bound by we women. She's Mm -hmm. as a woman. We are bound Mm -hmm. by in the same ways that Tony Soprano transgressed the social code men are bound by. And I think we'll definitely get into that as we start to talk about the episodes, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we selected a couple of specific episodes that we thought were like indicative of the show, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Some standout moments. Standout moments. Yeah. The first is season one, episode seven called Lonely Ghosts. In summary. In an attempt to get on her boss Dougie's good side, Amy decides to set him up on a date with a coworker. Tyler makes his feelings for Amy known. So in this episode, it begins and Amy has this dream um, where it's a really bad dream that it's like a nightmare, basically. And Levi, her ex-husband, is in it. And, and also all of the people from her workplace are in it. Mm-hmm. And I thought the dream was interesting because... Um, I, I think the other thing that the show really gets right is how prevalent work is in our lives, like how much time and and people and this this also people started talking and I personally started thinking about this a lot with the pandemic, like mm-hmm. work is a huge part of our lives. And um, I think it's like fitting that it dominates. I mean, Amy's always at work, almost always. And it's like, it also- Thinking about it, yeah. Thinking about it, it's in her subconscious. Mm -hmm. She's talking to her mom about it. She's talking to her ex about it. Only one time is it about the weekend. But it's like, it's mostly about work. So true. And it also Mm -hmm. points out how little time is there is off from work, right? Like she never does anything for fun. Like there's no leisure activity, right? That's so true, except for like the one where they go camping and that's like even like a poll to, to have to do that. That's such a good point. Yeah. It and, really and, dominates. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they go on a Sunday um, or maybe it's a long weekend or something. But I remember like it was a Saturday that she comes up with the plan to go mm-hmm. and then she's like, I'll pick mm-hmm. you up the next day. Like, I think the show has on its mind how much time we spend at work and how mm-hmm. much of it, how much of a time suck that it is. And mm-hmm. Totally. I think at, at other points, like underscores, um, you know, like how things were different, how the working world was different. We'll get to that with the Helen episode because they, someone mm-hmm. makes a remark. But anyway, I, I thought that was interesting that like all of her coworkers make appearances in her subconscious. Um, oh, I, w- I did want to talk about one, something that jumped out at me because this, this whole episode, we get into romance, sex, mm-hmm. relationships, you know, especially between men and women and the, the dynamic between straight men and women. And I thought that uh, the beginning when Amy goes to visit Levi, I, I started to think about like what motivates Amy and she doesn't seem particularly driven by sex um, in a way that like, I think a lot of, uh, you know, pre, like HBO is known for sex and nudity. She's not a very like sex crazy character, you know, like she doesn't, she's totally. not having a lot of sex. Um, and when she goes over to Levi's house, he makes a comment and he's like, you remember, he, he's like, are you noticing anything? Or I forget exactly what the line is, but she's looking around the room. She like doesn't understand what, what he wants her to see. And she, and she goes, oh, the bed, like, 
And she, he's like, yeah, the bed, like we had a lot of good times in this bed. And she's like, it's almost like she's not on that wavelength. And he starts to, they start to sort of like they're spooning or cuddling or whatever. And he starts to kiss her neck and she looks clearly like uncomfortable. And then yeah. he stops and she, and he just starts to cuddle, like just sort of like spoon her without the like, you know, without kissing or any of the foreplay. And she looks much more contented and you realize that she's after like emotional stability. She's not after like sex, you know, she's she wants, Mm -hmm. she wants connection. Yep. Um, Which is, I I think the theme of this entire episode is like Tyler makes a point later on where he's like, I just want a girlfriend. It's like mm -hmm. people who just crave like companionship and someone to just be there with them so they're not like alone like she had a nightmare and she goes to her ex-husband's house because she literally wants to be comforted sex is not on the brain like you're saying it wasn't even on her like radar when she walked into his bedroom and that's the first thing he thought of yeah um it's really interesting and it's just this idea that people are dealing with so much constantly and they just literally want someone to hold them and that's kind of all she wants from her hus- her ex-husband in this moment. Totally, totally. But then, of course, you know, it 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 is about, it's definitely, I think that's definitely what that, this episode is about, connection. But, you know, mm-hmm. in, or, in mm-hmm. connection, the final destination, it may be connection, but a pit stop on the way to connection, you, you inevitably, again, it's kind of this like, it's kind of this thing with Amy where she sees what she wants end goal, but doesn't really yeah. understand the things that might, that she might have to cross in order to get there. And sexism, misogyny, these are things that are, have been, that we have constructed as a society that are mixed up with relationships and connection, especially as it relates to men and women. And I think that she had like her, her idealism clouds her vision. And she's like kind of reacquainted with these things in this episode um, that yeah. that she has to contend with these like really horrible parts of society. Um, it's a really great way of putting it. And I think to kind of put a bow on this like Levi plot of the story right. or of this episode is that like at the end of her night, she ends up going back to his place with this expectation that he will just let her in and she can spend the night again. And he gives her this really meaningful like moment of like Amy you know I'm always here for you whenever you need me but not tonight because like you're saying with society and and in this situation your ex moves on and they start seeing new people and in this moment he's like you cannot rely on me for the support and that's like her jumping ahead again she's not seeing the in-between steps it's like perhaps my ex-husband does not want me to come over because he's trying to move on and yes exactly blocks that yeah but she's but she's exposing i think like you know the her her the her core desires are never wrong they're just right. they're just blind to um they're like blind actuality to, yeah acts to to life to reality <laughs> which is that yeah. like mm-hmm. you know like men are pigs you know or like men are monkeys I mean, she, she literally said it. <laughs> yeah men she said men <laughs> men can be such monkeys and the tr- I do believe that the, the the show paints almost all men as monkeys of one form. Yes. I mean, most of the men in the show are pretty despicable. Levi has his moments. Jeff, the journalist, has his moments. But Dougie, they all are for sure. Yeah. Dougie is a monkey. Tyler is a monkey. <laughs> um, 
they they really are all of her you know, co-workers yeah. i mean mm-hmm. this show is not I, I i i don't think it's kind towards anyone but um mm-hmm. i think that that she's right like when she says men can be such monkeys we definitely see it um yeah but what's it but in that same monologue that's that's when they do this sort of slow-mo and, and with the um with the voiceover after Debbie is like, you need to work. She's mm-hmm. like, she goes back to her, men can be such monkeys. The thing, she goes, what do you do when the thing that used to attract you now repels you? Like, where do where do I go from here? And that is such a good laughing. <laughs> it's interesting because it's true to me. Like, she's yeah. not mm-hmm. interested in sex. She's not really interested in men. She's like interested in uh, connection, you know? Do you think? That also stems from the fact that sex is the thing that got her fired from her job. It just occurred to me just now that it's like she's lost totally any desire for it because that is what really got her, you know, out on the streets. Back yeah, that's true. Treatment, like no desire for it. Only want to make change. Only want to do good, be better. And she really doesn't have that desire anymore. And plus, I think with Levi struggling so much with this alcoholism and drug addiction it is kind of a turnoff for her and she mm. more just looks at him as like i want him to get better and do better i don't really have any like urge to like have sex so yeah yeah it's interesting that because like i don't think sex is necessarily like a, you know like amy we we think of amy in terms of like her association to all these different societal structures like you know mm-hmm. work gender sex i don't think like there's anything evil about sex but there can be you know like yeah people can use yeah. sex can you can use sex which to, is what was used against her and yeah to get her fired like no de- definitely this is this is one of the moments where sort of inadvertently what she ends up doing is actually quite transgressive and quite radical because she says the thing that used to attract you now repels you like where do you go from here what she quite literally does is um uses uh men to divert from her unwillingness to fulfill the status quo so what sets up the monologue in her head about like men and and men are horrible is that dougie is that she's she's failing at work you know she's slacking off she's not doing her job that's true right (laughs) <laughs> um, like she, she i mean the the thing that you can dock amy for is that she's doing a bad job you know yeah, but yeah. like are you op- like do you have a moral obligation to do a good job at work no i mean it can benefit mm-hmm. you right you want to do a good job so that you can hold on to your job make money maybe advance if you care if you care about career advancement but she's not yeah. uh, she's not violating any kind of like moral code or obligation to another person. So what she actually does is men are abusing their power at work. They're being mm-hmm. sexist to women. They're, yeah. you know, contorting sex. And so what she does when she's in this pickle of like, oh shit, I haven't been doing my job. She mm-hmm. does what I think is like a totally fair game move. She's like, okay, well, like I'm just gonna, if men are being p- monkeys, right, then mm-hmm. um, I'm gonna, throw back on them and I'm going to use them to like get a leg up at work like and what's the big deal with that we think that she's doing something so horrible by like oh she's slacking and now she's getting Tyler to like help her work at with as a shortcut but and I don't even think she realizes what she's doing but she's actually kind of like fine taking it and like 
putting it she's on. spinning it yeah she's like yeah. fine all these men want to be dicks then i'm gonna like use them to do well at my job and like it's totally a fair game move because it's like sexism versus capitalism you know like do you know what like literally just occurred to me that i can't believe i didn't think of it till now but this so reminds me of the whole plot in clueless where Cher is like i'm gonna argue my way from a c to an a and ends up like setting up one of her teachers with another teacher. Like, I'm going to get you to find happiness. So A, you're not lonely anymore, but B, more importantly, that I get a better grade. And like, mm -hmm. it's just like doing this thing where you're like, I'm going to avoid doing the work, but I'm going to like do something that will make you happier in your life with Dougie, who's being on her ass all the time. She's like, I'm going to set him up. So he gets off my back and everybody else is here for the good of the workplace. But also like you're saying, she's doing something that's a little bit more kind of like a, a manly like masculine move like i'm gonna beat the system to do better here and to get treated better in the yeah just totally. what Cher did and clueless she's like how can i beat the system to have a better life <laughs> exactly it's pretty admirable in some it's ways. admirable like, yeah right. <laughs> i think she's i think that she's like I think that it is actually pretty radical because she decides to work the system in the same way that men work the system or absolutely or have system. always been doing yeah or, or abuse women like she sees yep. men abuse abusing women in various forms and you know they're all exploiting their relationships with women so she decides to exploit the workplace like and yep. what is so wrong with that it kind of makes you realize that like you know oh she's in this pinch where her boss needs her to do work and so she's kind yep. of like this whole place is fucked. So like, what does it really matter how I get there in the end? Yeah. Totally. And then another standout moment that kind of plays into this, especially with like men being monkeys, is when they go to the club to celebrate Dougie's promotion and she ends up trying to put him and her coworker Harper together. He turns out, I mean, not turns out because he is an ass, but he's basically so awful to this woman and making fun of her and degrading her. And the twist is that Harper's into it and she's like, yeah, I kind of like it. And everyone's shocked. Amy's shocked. And when they end up getting on the dance floor and dancing together, Dougie is like extremely inappropriate with Amy and is like touching her, making her so uncomfortable. She's like trying to get him off of her and then screams at Harper, you're an idiot if you date this guy. Right. And so it's just this wild moment of like, we did not see Harper being into this. And then when she is into it, it takes Amy's like, reckoning of like i work for a total jackass like why should this girl date him i don't know what totally. happened here it's a really nicely written full circle moment of like this totally blew up <laughs> yeah and it also says something about uh, it, it underscores and reinforces another thing about amy that we've come to learn at this point which is that mm -hmm. she often abandons any kind of long-term self-protective strategy in favor of values, you know, and morals. Like she basically yeah. abandons her scheme when Dougie crosses that line, line. and many, many yeah. lines. Yeah. And she places her values Jump before up. her yeah, before her strategy. And you realize that she is really idealistic and often places her idealism in favor of, or in front of her strategy. Like she's almost reacting to situations in a vacuum, like at face value. Like <laughs> You are being yeah. terrible. And and what's so wrong with that? You know, like in a way, it kind of makes you wonder what is so wrong with that. And you realize that these are the, the traps that have let 
abuse of all kinds, like sexual abuse, go on because people are like, oh, well, I can't say that because X, Y, Z, right? It's so true. And like a side note in that scene is that Tyler, who is her like best friend in the office right now, who made a move on her earlier in the episode that she rejected, ends up watching this whole thing fall out on the dance floor and does nothing to come to her in assistance or rescue. And that really speaks to this whole Me Too movement that I think Mike White was really ahead of the curve on here, where it's just like this workplace abuse and how there's bystanders and people who are enablers and let this happen. And the fact that it was really just like Amy out on her own, out on a limb, trying to be like, this is wildly inappropriate. And right, exactly. Only one who's seeing that and doing something about it. Yeah, I was wondering because Tyler says some of us are more alone, right? At the yes, mm-hmm. at the end, that's like, like the end. Yeah. Um, she's talk. He's talking to Amy in the car. He's. She's sort of like, I. I hope that like what happened between us doesn't fix anything. And she kind of tries to have a moment with him, and he, and she's like, and he says some of us are more alone. Which I was trying to figure out, like, okay, the Mike White character says this. Mike White wrote the show. Like this has to be have some kind of significance, but in true Mike White fashion, like I don't think that we're actually supposed to pity Tyler as the character. I feel like that's a comment yeah. on, on white men, like that they there's like an like we have it the hardest, you know, or like white men of yeah. a certain like not like the the kind of average ones, you know, the ones that aren't mm-hmm. like attractive models, but the mm-hmm. ones that are just like paper pushers, not. Like that he feels like he's like some of us are more alone and he it is really, really sad, but he also doesn't consider he's only looking at himself, you know, he's only looking at himself. He also is and this is a spoiler, but we've spoiled so much about the show, so you should just watch it at this point. But he his character arc is that he actually ends up with someone at the end of the show, which is very interesting considering you know that it's is he getting rewarded for his behavior you know what's the the commentary there because he also did end up having a really big lie in that situation where with the person that he ends up with but i agree that that line some of us are more alone really stands out because you're like am i supposed to feel bad for you i i don't really and truly at this point you've kind of let our heroine down here But it's kind of bringing it back full circle to like Amy's like just wanting to be held in the beginning of the episode and just be comforted. And like, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's that it's the Mike White like duality. Like we do feel bad for Tyler. Like he's a he's a sad character, but he's also like enabling behavior. He's also like viewing things from a very selfish perspective. Um, Exactly. Like my life is worse than yours somehow. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. So this one, the next episode is called Comrades Unite. It's right after season one, episode eight. Um, Basically in this one, Dougie, um, who is Amy's boss, sets the wheels in motion to fire Amy um, after what has happened the night before at the... Well, that it's it's a little bit up for up in the air, but we'll get into that. So Dougie sets the wheels in motion to fire Amy, so she must quickly find a way of convincing HR that she's worth saving. While at the same time, Tyler and Amy's friendship is on the rocks after um, the awkward encounter that happened between the two of them in the Cogentiva basement. 
Something I thought real quick, there's, I don't have much analysis on this. I just thought it was more like hilarious is when mm-hmm. Amy starts off the episode by asking her coworker, Connie, who is very like uh, prim and proper, doesn't swear. Uh, what does this department actually do? And I think it's amazing that in episode eight, she is like, what do we do down here? Like, I really, I, I, no one can tell me, I don't know. And I just thought that was like such a funny way to start up this episode that it shows, like you were saying before, and not a knock at Amy because she is trying to enact change and do things for the better of this bullshit company. But it is like low key hilarious that she could also not summarize in a sentence what it is that her department is actually fulfilling. Yeah. And she and needs it's like Jason Mantuka's character to explain it to her. <laughs> no, totally. And it, I also think that it, it's like building on what happened in the last episode, which is like, what is the big deal if she's not so good at her job? Right. Like, <laughs> you know, like what? Like, is she, is she letting down Cogentiva, the company? Like, I mean, that's something that Amy, Amy would say that. Right. Like, totally. Exactly. And she, again, she's not wrong because like companies aren't people, but she's also mm-hmm. wrong because like, well, Amy, you are, you know, what, $30,000 in debt from going away, which also says something it- about the fact that like rehab costs you know, why is rehab so expensive? Totally. She gets in a car accident in like this, the second or third episode, she needs to pay off that. I mean, she's just like accruing more and more money. And it's like, yeah. do you need an income if you want to live? <laughs> but you said, you spoke, you said something about the, about the phrase cock block. Oh yeah. Yeah. So basically she's like asking her coworker, Tyler, like, why is Dougie pissed at me? And he's like, you cock blocked him. And she's like, I did what? Yeah. And he has to explain and he uses his hands and like explains what that is to her. And I was like, hold on, was cock blocking like a thing in this time? And it definitely 2011, was. it definitely was. And it's just so funny that it keeps coming up in this episode. And I'm like, does no one know what this means? Like... No, she she definitely I, I think this is just meant to underscore her like complete naivete mm-hmm. and idealism, because also in that same scene, Amy is so shocked about why Dougie would be upset with her because she, she right. says like she goes, why is he mad? Like she 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 worked all I worked all weekend and set him up like like, <laughs> you know, I just think that's amazing <laughs> because she was like, what's it like? She forgot about the fact that she like you know, made a big scene. Screams and and insulted yeah, him, you know. Insulted but she's like, him. But she doesn't, it doesn't like even, it doesn't even occur to her. She's it like, I worked all weekend for this guy and got him <laughs> with the girl. Like, but it was, but the truth is, the truth is like, she did do all that stuff. He was just an <laughs> asshole, you know? So like, oh, for again, sure. she just is lacking also, context. He also hates her. And I think this is a drop in the bucket at this point. It's like she has already done so many things to piss him off that he is like, I like would love to fire her. <laughs> like, can this be it? Yeah, um, he does want to fire yeah. her. And the other thing is, like, I, I think it's interesting that she doesn't. At first, it's a bit of a shock. Like, you've really never heard of cockblock. But then when right. HR invites her up to the office, when they're like, oh, you're doing a bad job at work, like Dougie, like, you you know, you might be fired. She says, like, you want to know why? You want to know why he has it out for me? Because, like, I cock-blocked him. Um, (laughs) But then, and they say to her, you know, Amy, this is like a very serious claim. Serious accusation. An accusation of harassment. 
And they, they're like, do you realize that you're accusing him of harassment? And she doesn't actually, Amy doesn't like view the world in terms of like how things are categorized. She, in fact, she kind of, she skirts that question. She doesn't say like, yes, I am accusing him of harassment. She's saying, she kind of like dodges it. And she's like, all I'm saying is that like, if you're looking like you are, you need to consider the other motives why he might yep. be looking to fire me. And again, she's not wrong, you know? No, not at all. And I think I'm looking at your note here that I'm oh, yeah. sure you get in, but I think that does kind of tee this up a bit. Um, right. Which I, I was just thinking about this episode and like, I do think that the episode does look at what happens when women give men dose of their own medicine and it kind of mm -hmm. sets up what happened in the previous episode because the minute that Amy insinuates that the men in her life are acting out of sexual humiliation and and emasculation, they're they're mm -hmm. apoplectic. They mm -hmm. they have a fit, you know, like yeah, uh, which he does. Dougie, yes, exactly. T Tyler is exasperated by her and like swears at her. Mm -hmm. Dougie like ruins his office. What's interesting is that they're not wrong. Their claims about her are not wrong. She is lazy. She's not working. You know, she's mm -hmm. using them. But at the same time, it begs the question, why should that transgression trump all of the other transgressions that are happening around her? Men being mm -hmm. sexist and misogynistic, the company exploiting workers, which is what's happening. It, it just, it, it really does beg the question of what is more important than the other thing? What holds priority? Because it's like, yes, the original sin is that you, Amy, are not working. She's not mm -hmm. doing a good job and that is grounds for firing, sure. But all around her, men are being horrible. The company is exploiting the workers. And she and she's not doing this on purpose, but her naivete ends up exposing all of these kinds of bigger questions about like, what's the big deal? Like she's well, bad. Yeah. I was gonna say exactly hearing you list all those things, it's like you put it on a ranking and you're like, so is she really the biggest threat? No, because she's not sexist, she's not bullying people, she's not, you know, it's like she's just not doing a good job, but that doesn't warrant this certain punishment um yeah. and something else i i just want to make sure that we get in here that is oh, so baffling in this episode is that the second hr meeting when they call up amy to tell her that her job is safe that dougie's behavior has been confirmed by other employees yeah. is that not only do they have this meeting and she's like wow i'm not used to things going my way like you're starting to think oh my gosh like go amy she finally got one here and mm. then they say, we'd like to call in Dougie and mm -hmm. sit down with the two of you. And I remember you pointing this out when we chatted about this episode. And it's so unbelievably insane to think that they, as HR, were like, we're going to get the person in here that you're accusing of and yourself to talk about this together. Like, yeah, that is just so unheard of and so fucked up. And of course he gets in there and he's just like, Yep, yep, yep. Sounds good. And in her naive state, she's like, wow, this is amazing. Like, I feel like we should hug like me and right. Dougie. Like, we're finally getting along. Like, we're going to have a clean slate. And it's just like, in what world do you think you can sit down the bully and the victim at the same time and make sure this works yeah. out? I, I almost wonder if like, if they, because, okay, I was trying to think about like, was this a device in order to further characterize Amy, because mm -hmm. I do think that prior to like the Me Too watershed Me Too moment, you know, 2016 with Harvey Weinstein and everything, something like this might have happened. It might have happened. Yeah. Like, 
But also, totally. I mean, like maybe, maybe not. I'm not really sure. But what's interesting is after they do this, the HR and, and Amy says, like, I think we should hug. They cut back to the HR people and they are, are uncomfortable by the hugging. They're like, why yes. are you hugging him? It underscores Amy's purity again and operating in a vacuum. She doesn't see anything wrong with this. It's kind of no, like, and- yeah. It's oh, like sorry, double, I- like double backing on itself where like they do this thing that is objectively fucked up. But then because she doesn't view things in terms of societal context, she's like, oh, this is great. Like, this like, is the perfect you know. fix. We're going to work in harmony and everything's going to be great. And then she's like shocked when Dougie is being so weird around her afterwards and like After, having Jacob yeah. Manzoukas like s- always as a witness whenever they have conversations. And it's like, he was, he was basically like, I don't trust you anymore. Yeah. Like you're going to go to HR and try to get me fired. So it is so funny how she's so baffled by his hostility afterwards. And you're kind of just like, well, what did you expect? You know? Yeah, that, like, that's why I do think it is kind of a device. Because like, if we were watching the show in 2011 and they invited the harasser or the perpetrator into, you know, that would we'd be like, what? Like that? And I don't think that's true. Do that. It could be shocking. Yeah, yeah. But then it's, but but then they are double <laughs> Yeah, where where it might happen. happen. Yeah, yeah. You know, it could. It definitely could. But then they are shocked by how she responds to it, which is like, Mm -hmm. which is like, we should hug. You know. (laughs) Um, and she also says, I I love the line at the end where where she realizes that well, she thinks that it was Tyler. Amy thinks that it was Tyler that Mm -hmm. um that sort of corroborated her forward. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. But it ends up being Connie who is her coworker who earlier in the episode is scolding her for not knowing what cogentiva is or does. And that kind of, again, makes us consider what value we're placing on different things in the workplace. Mm-hmm. You know, Connie is the one that originally is like, I can't believe that you wouldn't know what happens at work, which like, what's the big deal? Like, why do you need to know? Well, for Amy, she needs to know because they're doing something very, very, um, you know, evil. Illegal. Illegal. (laughs) Um, Or just like reprehensible at best. It's a great twist that she's like, I came forward against Dougie because of how much he curses. And that really went against Connie's morals. And then you highlighted that line where she says, work can get stressful, but you can't forget your morals. And it's so funny because her and Amy throughout the show have this really funny relationship but it's this moment of like camaraderie and like hey you know we had different beeps with him but we came together and you know put him in his place for once if it was cursing or sexual harassment you know we yeah did it uh-huh. yeah yeah it came into my head that i was like okay amy is a fool right like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and her her like foolish behavior her follies expose all the different absurdities of the world that we've constructed for ourselves and i realized that that is actually what a Shakespearean fool, like what the mm-hmm. what the archetype is. I, mm-hmm. I looked this up online on Wikipedia where it says others argue that Shakespeare's clowning goes beyond just comic relief. Obviously, you know, Amy is also sometimes comic relief. Instead, making the horrific or deeply complex scenes more understandable and true to the realities of living than and now, shifting the focus from the fictional world to the audience's reality to help convey more effectively the theme of the drama. I actually think... Oof. She is kind of a fool, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. It, but her actions and like her, the ridiculous scenarios are actually exposing what, you know, all of these bad things.
Consider Helen is season one, episode nine. So this is the episode right after the one we were just talking about. And in short, it's a day in the life of Helen, who plays Amy's mom, as she deals with her frustrated daughter, her R8's ex-son-in-law, and her own haunting memories. Helen is played by Diane Ladd, who is Laura Dern's mother. Her I did mother. not know that. I know. I was like, that was so wild. I didn't realize that at first, and then I was like, oh, that is Diane Ladd, who's like a has is a successful actress, award winning actress. Um, wow. Mary, and so obviously Laura Dern's father is Bruce Dern, but yeah, that is that's her real mom. She's amazing in this yeah. show. She is so good. I don't know. She. I hope she was nominated because she was great. Um, yeah. wow, that's wild. How she fun is, is that? That mom and daughter got to go to work together yeah. and play these fucked up <laughs> Yeah, Laura. I mean, I think Laura Dern, like in the same way of um, what's another example? You know, they are this like Hollywood dynasty kind of family. With this Diane Ladd and Bruce Dern she, and she giving birth yeah. to Laura Dern, you know, who's a formidable yeah. talent in her own right. The Dernissance. The Dernissance. Um <laughs> uh yeah, so this episode. Another interesting fact when I was looking up the cast. So mm-hmm. Barbara Berry plays Carol, who was the woman in the grocery store that that it kind of takes up like a big chunk of this episode. This yes. old friend, family friend that Helen bumps into. Barbara Berry originated the role of Sarah in Stephen Sondheim's company, which I wow. got super into. She got nominated for a Tony for that. I got oh really into goodness. company when he died. But- um but yeah, she's like an incredible actor. And I thought she was really good. Oh my in this God. Part. That is so cool. I would have never have known that. But she, yeah, she did a great job in the scene. She was very effective. Um, yeah. And very so like, cool. Casting. Also very theatrical too. Like, I, I, I guess yes. I sort of, I, what made me want to look her up is the way that she delivered certain lines. Like, she was like, mm-hmm. you know, she'd be like, and I'm going to make you look at my kids' photos. She's like, <laughs> my grandkids. <laughs> there's something really theatrical about her so i was sort yes. of like this is person you know that's a great catch that scene really gave me so much cringe uh mm-hmm. it's like the nightmare of running to your grocery store in your hometown you're like who am i gonna run into that i'm gonna have to have a long conversation with and i don't want to catch up with anyone i feel like very narrow-minded because i never really think of it from another age perspective but running into a woman your age in the seven, like in your seventies, probably I would say is how old she is, is mm-hmm. this pressure of like, how are your kids doing? How are your grandkids? What are you up to? And poor Helen, you, for the first time, I think as a viewer really realize how messy her life is right now. And it seems like she kind of has nobody to talk to was yeah. the takeaway I got from that scene. And I thought they did a really great job writing it performing it and you just felt like so awkward for her and she's just like well you know amy's living with me but it's okay like kind of trying to de- defend everything going wrong in her daughter's life to this woman who she's barely talked to mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah I yeah it definitely great. yeah it was it's a great scene i think i read somewhere kind of rare to see two women of a certain age having a scene like this which isn't mm-hmm. It's not com. There's nothing comedic about it. Like it's not like Golden Girls, right? Where like no, women true. are like you know doing it for laughs or something. Um, mm-hmm. They're like really having this like pretty 
normal catch-up moment, but that kind of reveals like a lot of really sad, sad realities about Helen's life, unresolved conflict and kind of settling and realizing how small your world is a little bit. Totally. Uh, That's such a great shout about, yeah, that women of a certain age, we don't see these scenes a lot. Um, yeah. Just comedic yeah. play. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Really, also, just really we, I think we both made a note about this line of the, it's like kind of a refrain throughout the episode where a voiceover from Helen saying to her husband, what's the worst thing mm-hmm. that could happen when, you know, yeah. he's fretting about this deal that's going <laughs> to blow yeah. up. It's actually, you know, the person, Carol, in the store is actually part of that narrative because the deal doesn't, her husband's deal, he drops out at the deal and then that has bearing on Helen's husband who then kills himself. But, you know, he keeps, she keeps saying like, what is the worst thing that could happen? What's the absolute worst thing? And people say that to, I I remember when the pandemic hit, I developed a really bad, bad relationship with work where I got really, really stressed out over Mm -hmm. all these things. And, and people used to say that to me too. I'd be like, I I felt like at times like, oh, I'm going to get fired over this, you know, or at least that's where my mind went. And my, like other people I talked to would be like, what's the worst thing that could actually happen? Maybe you do get fired, but like, A, probably not, but B, like, let's say you did get fired, right? Like, yeah. Is that like, why is that so bad? I don't know. I just thought that that, like, that was an interesting thing to repeat throughout the episode because it becomes about what work does to people you know i think that's such a compelling point and the fact that it is this reoccurring voiceover that eventually reveals what how the husband did die and it's so haunting because clearly you know this wife of you know a different time is trying to comfort her husband what's the worst that can happen and she didn't even think death would be an option you know, yeah. her saying what's the worst that could happen is like, no, we'll, we'll get another job. We'll figure out finances. We'll get food on the table. But it wasn't that you would take your own life. That was not her bar of what the worst is that could happen. Yeah. I think. It, it, I remember watching it and I just like felt my heart like pounding. And I was like, I feel so bad for this family. I feel so mm-hmm. bad for Amy. It makes a lot of sense why she's been the way she is and poor Helen and you know it's I love bottle episodes sometimes when they're so clever in the way they weave other you know pretty regular plot lines in and out and then when it shows Amy later that day just going on and on about work and there's Helen just like now you have the sympathy for her and how lonely she is in her life and she really hasn't dealt with her depression and she just has to sit there and let her daughter yammer on yeah that doesn't really matter it doesn't matter and and you realize that there is a history in this family of work exacerbating an other Mm -hmm. underlying mental illnesses or mental health Mm -hmm. problems leading to bad things and then you kind of realize why her mom why helen is the way that she is with regard to amy because amy is consumed by work in sometimes a kind of concerning way and we know that those same pressures at work exacerbated her husband's depression and unfortunately led to him taking his own life um exactly yeah i also i also learned one more thing i had just watched right before this it's an episode from the new season of pen 15 where Mm -hmm. it's all about maya's mom yuki and it focuses Mm -hmm. explicitly on her 
And I was like, hmm, I wonder what is the origin of like an episode that deals with a side character. And I learned that it is a trope, a TV trope called a lower deck episode, which is meant to focus primarily on otherwise minor characters using their point of view to give an outsider's perspective on the central plot or characters. This is from Tropedia, whatever that is. But it's named plug. after, yeah, plug for for that. But it's named <laughs> after an episode of Star Trek Next Generation from 1994 where they do this. So that's oh. the origins of this type of episode. Yeah. That's very cool. I yeah. never knew that had a name. I love that. A little bit of and it's really. History. I guess in TV history, I also think it's super effective to the show as a whole and also very strategically placed that it's almost at the end of the first season because now we've gotten to know Amy, you know, we've known like these other characters, but we really don't know much about her mom. And mm -hmm. this kind of puts a spin on how you perceive the family and their mother-daughter relationship. So the last episode is Agent of Change, season two, episode eight. This is the series season finale, series finale um, before Jeff, who is the LA Times reporter that Amy gets involved with, before his expose article appears about uh, Cogentiva, Amy's company, um, a guilt-wracked Tyler confesses to Eileen, um, and Eileen is played by Molly Shannon. This is Tyler's love interest, and she also happens to be one of the assistants to the head of the whole company. And Amy is brought before the head of the whole company, Charles Zayden, to explain herself and why she whistle blew and brought, you know sought to brought, bring down this entire company. I mean, obviously, if you're going to watch the show, this is a big spoiler. It's <laughs> huge. <laughs> This is the end. But um, it's a really great episode. It's a really great finale. And we were trying to figure out if they knew the show was going to be canceled. You know, how did they wrap this up? And the consensus was they they weren't sure. But Mike White did want to create an episode that in case it got canceled, that they had some wrap up. And obviously, they, they were very disappointed when they did not get renewed. But it does give a lot of finality to the character stories in some pretty interesting places. But what stood out to me the most is that big confrontational scene at the end where Amy is meeting with the CEO. Mm -hmm. And a lot of lines that are said in this scene really tie back to the mental health stigmas. Yeah. And he calls her a mental patient. Right. He says, You feel, but you don't think. And I just thought that was extremely harsh and yeah. yeah it's and amy for the first time has this very like almost like blase attitude about her mm. and it's just kind of like i'm so sick of your shit is, is yeah. basically her attitude and i think that was such a cool arc for her to finally come to this like meditative state of like i'm in this moment and i'm so tired of it and it is what it is you can like yell at me all you want and call me names but like the thing is, she says this line where she's like, I'm tired of watching the world fall apart because of guys like you. Mm -hmm. I tried to take a little power back. And she yeah. did. She, she, she did. And she did. And she wrecked her whole life, like we said earlier. Like, she, she, <laughs> yeah. she, I mean, you could imagine, unless she gets like, now I'm using my succession knowledge to say this, but like, unless she gets some kind of like immunity from the government, right? Somehow. I mean, she's still going to get, um, Everything she's still going to. 
Yeah, everything. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're talking about next. But yeah, it's also especially for him to say those things when like the show basically tells us that there's a history of like, you know, mental illness in her family. Exactly. Um, I do think it's interesting that he calls her that because especially mm -hmm. when the show is making us contend with those issues, you know. Uh -huh. Totally. Yeah, it's a great yeah. episode. I personally, I was pretty satisfied with the way they left it. I'd love more because I love watching these characters and I love the yeah. writing. But I do think that not knowing what would happen to the, the show as a whole, I think they ended it strongly. Yeah, definitely. And, and I also think that the relationship between the relationship between Tyler and um, Eileen, Molly Shannon's character, mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. is particularly interesting because it's kind of like embodies like the status quo. I think that Amy is is operating against because mm. you know they they have a very in, in other episodes we get into like you know the first time they have sex and um, other things like that. And Tyler is obviously a scorned IT guy who now works doing something just super boring <laughs> that has insidious <laughs> like an insidious underbelly. And then Molly yeah. Shannon is like the assistant. So another like seemingly boring job, but she's supporting this like super evil CEO guy. But they mm -hmm. it's basically this love in a hopeless place, you know, and she says to him, like Tyler's really upset because he needs to warn her about what Amy is doing and what it's going to, mm -hmm. you know, like that they betrayed that he has betrayed Eileen by leaking all this stuff. And she said, she says, like, what's the matter? Is it about your aunt's timeshare? <laughs> and it makes <laughs> the line is great because it's like. <laughs> No, this is the life that Amy is rejecting. It's a simple, yeah. there is a simplicity to it. Like work, mm -hmm. do your job. Like, you know, li like life is kind of boring, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> the, the life no, that, it's so true. <laughs> where the life that Amy is rejecting is boring. And also, yeah. like, we also know that Tyler's kind of a like, you know, he's a sad sack. He's also kind of like, yeah. Um, but it's still, it, it still has like sexist tendencies and like, Mm -hmm. you know he's not like a great guy he's an everyman but but yeah. the show is making the argument that like every men have learned bad things i just thought the line was great because it was kind of like their life together is going to be so simple so mundane mm -hmm. mundane but also like underneath supporting a lot of bad things yeah um i don't know yeah. i just i thought it was a it's a really good point i yeah and also fucking hilarious <laughs> yeah I mean, like chance. she has no idea what is actually going on and it totally affects her yeah um and also the and the argument between the argument between helen and and amy where mm -hmm. amy goes some things are bigger than you and then helen goes yes some things are bigger than you it's again this like point of like mm -hmm. you're right and you're wrong you know like yeah. Mike yeah. Dwight's characters can be right and wrong in the same sentence mm -hmm. because Helen's perspective is why are you taking this on second to last is our segment mm -hmm. called the biggest hoe on the show and we <laughs> are each gonna pick the character that we thought fits this so yes. I'm gonna go first I picked Sandy who is played by Robin Wright and she that's a is great featured. choice <laughs> thank you She's in an episode in season one, which I'm looking right now, and I it's Sandy. It's uh duh, that's the <laughs> episode six. So basically, I'm gonna say, first of all, Robin Wright is so beautiful. I 
god she is gorgeous i was she like is. this hair these cheekbones who is this goddess she played jenny and forrest gump she um actually just had a movie come out that i i do want to watch about oh, yeah. her in the wilderness i forget the name of it oh yeah, yeah. anywho I think she's the biggest emotional hoe on the show because she is someone that Amy met at the retreat in Hawaii and they are going to have this visit together where Sandy's going to come stay with her. And basically she spends the entire episode trying to pull information out of everybody, trying to help them, basically give them these therapy sessions of like, oh yeah, we unpacked everything and we went through all of this and they loved it. Like her interpretation is always that they had a great time and a great experience. And then the character comes to Amy and is like uh you need to get her the fuck out of here I'm more miserable than I was before so I just kind of thought if she was a great emotional like <laughs> spurt on the show and mm-hmm. wreaked havoc and then got out but what an impression she made she was fantastic so yeah that's, my that's it I love that choice because she's only there for one episode you know but one like, episode but like damn <laughs> Yeah, like Amy wreaks havoc on her own life, but then this one character comes in and wreaks havoc on Amy's life. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's a. I love that one. I chose Jeff Flender, played by Dermot Mulroney, who is the LA Times journalist. Um, Most of the men on the show seem pretty unappealing. And I would still say that Jeff kind of falls into that category. Like he mm-hmm. he's not a good guy, but he is the hottest guy on the show for sure. Maybe except for Damon, but like Damon, Damon a- Amy's former boss. Um, oh yeah, he's attractive, and Luke Wilson. I would also say, and Luke attractive. Wilson. But I also think the yeah. show sexualizes Jeff the most. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Oh yeah, we we didn't talk about Christopher Abbott. Um, a girls uh oh my god so right. wanted to regular being on the show just so yeah an editor he had that he was in that um, oh he was so good what episode? the rehab episode the rehab episode yeah yeah i wonder super sexy well because girls launched a year you know a couple months later so i wonder if mm-hmm. like m- maybe his managers were you know they had a yeah they were they, like they did a good job yeah they, they stuck sure him in these two things did <laughs> yeah, he was good. But anyway, so that, that was Jeff. He's, you know, he's like a player and pro- and is using Amy in a number of different ways, emotionally, sexually, and then also in terms of his career. I just think that he might be the show's biggest hoe. I love that choice. I think it's a great shout. And it's so true. He does use Amy for a lot of reasons. And yeah. he's a pretty face. He was fun pretty to watch. Pretty face. Pretty face. Um, All right. So to close it out. Flood of the month. Which is our honorary title for people, things, events <laughs> we admire and want to give a shout out to. It's a good thing if you get this title. Um, in in in, uh, in media and entertainment as a whole. Absolutely. So unrelated to Across. the show, just kind of like, mm-hmm. what are you thinking about? Who's the Flood yeah. of the month for you? Yeah, we love them. So mine is Issa Rae. Uh, at the time that we are recording this, Insecure just ended. I absolutely love the finale. I loved the documentary about the making of the series. Highly recommend watching it. She just gave so many opportunities to amazing writers on the show and directors who have gone on. I think they said 10 writers have gone on to be showrunners, creators. I think that is so cool that she did that. She's a fucking icon. I adore her. I adore her work. She's, she's killing it. 
and just wanted to say that. Love her. I need to finish the new season. Oh, Hopefully, Insecure is not in this top 10, although I think you could make an argument that maybe it should oh, be. It should be. It should be. We will definitely give an episode for it at some point yeah. because there's so much to talk about on that show. It's so crazy. much, so much. And also a little bit of synchronicity, Natasha Rothwell, right? <gasps> yeah. Writer, star, uh, star in the show, writer and director and mm -hmm. gives an incredible, maybe one of the best performances on White Lotus, definitely. Totally agree. She yeah. was fantastic. Yeah, big fan. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, your turn. Okay, my slut of the month is Emily in Paris, the whole show <laughs> on Netflix, which at the time of our recording this, the season two just dropped this past weekend, I guess. Yes, um, sure did. This show has become a, an elaborate meme. Maybe it was, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was, maybe it was developed to be a meme. Who knows? I don't know. Like, uh, just picture your writer's room and the word meme, like on the whiteboard. <laughs> I don't know. It's like such a ridiculous, it is so bad. It, it yeah. is so bad that it's almost like you have to, like, they're neat. I don't know. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to say. Like, it, it's such a baffling show, um, because of how ridiculous and bad it is, but it's so good at the same time. <laughs> it's so good because, first of all, Darren Starr, he who is we behind love. who we love. We love all his shows are platforms for fabulous fashions, and mm -hmm. that alone should be applauded, right? Like the costumes that the women get to wear in this are amazing. The men's wardrobe, I think, is like less eh. interesting. Yeah, but like the fashions are amazing. The title cards are beautiful. Oh, the title cards are the best part. They're Gorgeous. so good. Yeah, um, they're really well placed. The, yeah. You know, the French English dynamic is ridiculous and stupid, doesn't make any sense. But I will say, and I, I don't really want to talk about that because I know that that has come under a lot of criticism and it is kind of the basis for the whole show. What I like about this show is there's just hot guys and the Emily, chef. the chef, there's a new one in season two. She's just oh, like, yeah. I don't know which one to choose. This is, that is the like candy that we kind of just need. And mm -hmm. it's just, the whole mm -hmm. thing is just like a, a bucket of popcorn. Um, <laughs> Emily and Paris, candy. a bucket of popcorn. <laughs> it's just, it's just good. And I'm like, you know, it's bad. It's ridiculous. You can make fun of it. Yeah. You can, you yeah. can both, I think that's what's great about it. You can both, you have to make fun of it for how bad it is, but you also can't mm -hmm. help but want to watch more because it's such a feast. You know? Oh, the second it dropped, I watched almost the whole thing in two days. Like, yeah. and I, I have a lot to complain about that show, but you are hundred percent correct that I will watch it. Like, yeah, I can't not get me to watch it. Did you finish it yet? I'm done. Yeah, I'm done. I, I will say, I don't think anything happens this whole season. We wind up like exactly where we started. <laughs> well, no, there's a new, there's a new love interest. Right. <laughs> Sort sort of, sort of, yeah. You're right. You're right. It does. I just it, like when it ended, I was like, I like slammed my laptop shut and I was like, Are you fucking kidding me? Like however I started. I do think that it's kind of interesting because she's sort of like they're setting it up for her to reject American values in favor of the French way of life. Which oh, is that's kind true. of cool. Her really? boss her boss, who like we think is a good person, kind of turns out to oh, be the bad. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Agreed. 
I also, I, I think my favorite part of the show is the French boss. I love her. Love her. She's a she's great actor. She's, I think yeah. she's the best actor on the show. Totally agree. And she's the scene where she was circles. wearing her bikini and she was coming out of the ocean. I was so, so happy they did that. I feel like we never see women that age wearing a bathing suit totally. on the beach. And she looked fucking awesome. And she gets to date a much younger man and like whatever. So but fun. also she just, she acts circles around everybody. And it's great to like in this show that is so, so much about just like set piece. Like it's just about set pieces. Even the actors are set pieces. They're like hot. They're not yeah. very good actors. They just kind of like move around with all these like other sumptuous <laughs> elements. But she like shows uh -huh. up and she's like, oh no, I can actually like do this, you know, and be fabulous yeah. at the same time. Yeah. She's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's a great, that's a great pick, Matthew. Thank you. All right. <laughs> is that it? I think that's it. Um, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, next month, we will be talking about succession. Yes. Oh my gosh. This is going to be a big one. Oh man. Get ready for five hours of us talking about how much we fucking love that show. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, well, Yay! we did it until next we time. We did it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at official underscore HP Hose. Music created by ZFB. Stay tuned for next month's episode about succession. Perfect. You're bored for the radio, baby. <laughs> Am I? <laughs> <laughs>